Want to be a CEO? It's a tough mountain to climb. I'm finding out how to get there and what to do once you make it to the top. I'm Michael Thompson and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Today's the final instalment in our three-part series looking inside the boardroom. As always, I'm joined by Philip Levinson, CEO, CEO mentor, and the author of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. Lev, g'day. Hello, Michael. Over the last couple of episodes, we've been really fortunate, really, to be joined in the studio by a special guest, one of Australia's most experienced and respected company directors and corporate advisors, John Poynton AO. Just by way of background, if you haven't heard the previous two episodes, which I would recommend you go back and listen to, there isn't much John doesn't know about the board, the chair, the executive team, and the way it all operates together. He's had years of experience on the boards of Australian-listed companies and not-for-profit institutions, and even federal government boards. Today, we're picking up where we left off last time, the skills and attributes of an effective director. I was looking through the annual report for a a major listed company uh, just the other day and I I noticed for the first time that there was almost a a skills matrix Mm. there that that actually showed the areas of expertise Mm. of all the directors and Mm. and I found it fascinating Mm. to see that this particular company had directors that were um, that had experience and expertise in everything from commercial and and, and sales through to the media and and marketing involved in the company. But there was a big gap all the way along for legal. There was no legal experience and no legal expertise on Mm. that board. And there was a note at the bottom of the matrix that said, for any areas where we are lacking in these skills, we'll bring in external external assistance. Mm. But how important is it to have those skills in the first place on the board without needing to import the expertise? Well, I start with a small board's a good board. So I think once you get below beyond about eight people, you know, you just it, it ceases to be as functional and effective, I think, as it could be with a smaller board. Obviously, mm-hmm. conversely, if it's too small, you know, that so somewhere between sort of four and eight, I think, is the right number, depending on the size and complexity. That's the first thing. The second is the companies I'm involved in definitely run skills matrices or skills matrix in the sense that you actually more want to know what the gaps are. Mm-hmm. So in, in the case of an oil and gas company, if you're an explorer, you actually want subsurface technical expertise. Yeah. You want production expertise. You want, you know. So so we've done that and we identify that, yes, what we'd really like is a female expert in subsurface geology. Well, good luck finding one of them, you know. So, <laughs> But it doesn't mean you don't look. So I think it's a very good idea and probably mandatory to do a skills matrix and because that also identifies when you've got duplication. So we do that. When it comes to specific expertise, I guess I would always take someone who's been an executive, been a CEO or CFO or COO, because they actually know what it's like to run a company, to make payroll, to interact with the board. Um, so they're going to come with a different perspective. If someone's a former partner or a current partner of a, a professional services firm, accounting or legal, well, they will bring specific expertise. But is that person taking up a slot on a board that might be better filled by someone where you can't actually externally hire. In other words, you can't basically just engage with the professional for services firm. And inevitably, your CFO is going to have plenty of accounting expertise. Uh, your company secretary's probably got a bit of legal. So do you really need someone 
you know, who who has that specific functional expertise, particularly if they're going to play a conformance role primarily, and that's what tends to happen. So someone coming from a chartered accounting or a legal background is going to say, right, well, I'm the logical chair of the audit committee and I'm going to be focused on risk and all of that. What I also look for is the the flip. Well, how are you going to add value? How are you going to add to the total shareholder return? Yeah. It's that adding value that's such a critical part. And one of the things that you and I have talked about is how does the CEO or business leader execute on the strategy. So mm. you've, and this is something that we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. One of your assessments for or criteria for a good CEO is their ability to execute. Mm. You've gone away, you've done your strategy, you've gone away to your st- strategy retreat. I love the concept of a strategic retreat, as used to be in the boardroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's, everybody's on board. And mm. then a year later, it hasn't been. Exactly. Executed. And so. I'm just thinking about something I'm involved in at the moment. Um, that is an issue and, and you really need to be very disciplined when it comes to, you know, budget to actual. Okay, so you said that we would be here by this time. Oh, no, 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 well, this happened, the dog ate my homework and, you know, da-da-da, <laughs> COVID, whatever. So give me another three months. Yeah. So you give them another three months and it's three months, oh, no, 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 so the sun didn't shine that day and there was a flood that week and, you know, and, and give me another three months. Well, at some point you need to draw a line in the sand and everybody needs to know that if that outcome has not been achieved, that was budgeted and, and you know, sexually agreed to, then there have to be changes. Yes. Um, and, and so that's, that's where it can be difficult when they get that collegiate, oh, well, you know, Poor old Tom, you know, he's a good bloke or Susie, you know, she'd give her a break kind of thing, you know, she's our friend and and it's not looking after the shareholders' interests. Yeah. It's so, so that's what you've got to keep coming back to. Yeah. How big a risk is having really dominant personalities? Like one, say one dominant yeah. personality. And that's, again, where the chair comes in. The problem is, of course, if the chair's <laughs> that the person. Chair. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Seen that too. Um, and, and, again, you know, there's lots of companies. If you're an aspiring non-exec director, just note how many unlisted and listed public companies there are if you want to be on the board. And if you don't feel comfortable, I mean, firstly, do very extensive DD, not just on the company. And size is no guarantee of success, as we all know. Culture sometimes can get buried inside large organisations, and that's why culture surveys are really important as well. Honestly, re- you know, responded to, you know, cultural surveys. But- but I think, you know, the the idea is that you just want to make sure that you've really understood what you're going to get into. And if you don't like the look of it, then move on. Uh, if you find yourself in a situation like that, well, obviously you're going to try and change it mm. and maybe without it being subversive, rally the rest of the directors around to someone being delegated to talk to the chair about, you know, that that dominance, or indeed if it is an individual, then have a chat with a chair, an individual that's not the chair, and say, look, you know, this is not working for me. Don't sit around kind of keeping quiet or being ever quieter at each, you know, successive meeting because that's no good for anyone. One more for me on culture, and I know we talked a bit about culture before, but I think it's worth just getting into it one more time. Lev, you've spoken before about how culture comes from the, the top, 
So how important is it to have that same culture replicated or even originating in the board? And this is probably a question for, for both of you because it's an interesting kind of dynamic to, to look at it. If you've got the, the culture coming from the CEO's office and a company might need a significant change in culture to bring it forward, how hard is it to get a, a board on board with that these days and how risk averse are boards now when it comes to cultural issues because they have become so significant in modern business? I think you're right. I think board members are becoming more risk averse. I think they're becoming, you know, very sensitive to ESG issues and and the impact that that can have on the rating of the company as expressed by the share price. It might not have had any impact on the financial performance, but might well, you know, if there's a a kind of view that the company isn't doing all it could be doing in ESG, well, that's kind of, you know, tricky for someone to actually respond to. So they're going to be, they're going to lurch to conservatism probably, which again is my point earlier about you actually want people to focus on performance. You want the CEO to be across all of that, but focused as well on what they're there to do, which is to generate returns for the shareholders. So I think it's very difficult and I think it's going to become more difficult. It's going to mean the barriers probably higher to people actually wanting to be on boards. That means the fees go up. That's not necessarily a good thing. It then means there's more concentration. It means there's potentially that concern earlier about people relying on those fees, and so it goes round and round. Uh, I think it's difficult. I do think that it, it it does come down to the kind of cultural and and um, ethical makeup of the the chair initially and fellow board members, and then how that gets imbued through the organisation. And if the CEO is the wrong person, then they have to go. But you try and work on them, you know getting up the curve before that happened. Yeah, I find it very interesting. I mean, this whole cultural thing is, was incredibly important. As a leader, was incredibly important to me. And I wanted the most junior level of employee to be able to look to the board and be proud. Yeah. And we talk about the concept of the CEO or my CEO. Mm. And you know that you've made it as a CEO when the entire organisation looks to the CEO and says, this is my CEO. My, yeah. I'm proud to have, this is my board. I'm proud to have them mm. as my representatives mm. as opposed to the, well, what would they know? They're so divorced from the whole process that, and day-to-day, mm. our day-to-day existence. Mm. And they issue proclamations and they, we have a fantastic mission statement mm. And mm. yet they go off no and, they yeah. do, and they go off and do yeah. something completely different. I think that's right, Liv. And I, I do think it plays that point earlier about, you know, interacting, board members interacting with management. And most of the organisations um, I'm involved in, and a future fund had it last week in Melbourne, was the delayed Christmas catch-up between the board and management. We had it last week, just, just a gathering after work, just to sort of f- for the board members or the guardians to be able to mingle with the uh, the senior members, or in fact, all the members of the team. The other thing is obviously healthy when various divisional heads are requested, required, or invited to present to the board. So someone in a particular field, um, you know, a technical field, gets to make a presentation to the board, you know, once a year or whatever, and then they, they can be interrogated, if you like, or interviewed or whatever, but they feel like they're being listened to and an important part of the organisation. Yeah. So there's a sort of slightly social element to that and then there's a more formal one, and I think both of them are healthy. 
Yeah. Two final points. Number one is the future fund. And it's worth pointing this out because I think it is possibly the, the coolest <laughs> job title uh, <laughs> to have on a business card. You are a, a guardian of the fund, mm. which is a, a very impressive thing to have on a business card. <laughs> uh, and number two is from the beginning of our conversation, when I said the line that I'd heard about a board that was quiet, a board that, that you didn't notice was even there, was one doing a, a good job. I don't know whether I entirely agree with that anymore from the beginning of the, the conversation in that sometimes it feels that a board does need to be, at least in terms of communication with the executive team, they need to be very clear. They need to be a little bit noisy and make it clear what the expectations are mm. for their roles and for the for the the company. Mm. So it probably it's not a one size fits all no. kind of kind of thing. So a quiet board is not necessarily a good board. No. Well, two things. Uh, the guardian thing is actually quite funny because Peter Costello, who's the chair of the Future Fund, but set it up when he was treasurer, said he absolutely deliberately used the term guardian. Um, and all that it invokes, you know, there's a shield and a sword. and The board of and guardians, it is impressive. Um, because he wanted future politicians to know that there were these people that were guarding the money and that if they felt like raiding it, they had to go through the, the guardians, <laughs> the board of guardians with their shields and spears and swords first. And so that actually is, is really good. And there's been wonderful bipartisan support for the whole concept yes. of the Sovereign Wealth Fund and long may it continue. Absolutely. Um, the other one is a bit like what Lev was saying earlier. I think you want the management to respect the board and if you can't ever hear from anyone, you know, if, if someone's just going to sit there and sort of just turn up and not contribute, then it's hard to, one, understand what that person stands for and what they contribute, but also to respect them. So I think, you know, whether it's using the term being noisy, but certainly making sure that you're engaged in the process and adding value where you can and asking questions where it's important to do yeah. so um, is going to build that kind of rapport and and that mutual respect which is very important that whole concept of respect in fact interestingly we started our conversation that's one of mm. the first things you said it was trust and respect mm. and here we are having mm. having talked ending it yeah, yeah. I'm afraid that really is all, all that we have time for. John, thank you so much. Thanks also for your involvement in the book. That was, that no, was very much. No, it was an pleasure and congratulations again. Thank I mean, you very much. I've always wanted to write a book. I just don't have the just patience Well, just, actually, just listening to you, I think that I was about to say, I think your book's going to be well, a bestseller. I don't know about that. But anyway, no, well done. So thank you. John, thank you for joining Three Peaks Leadership. Thanks, Michael. And that's the end of our three-part interview with John Poynton AO. We're very grateful to have had this time with John, one of this country's most experienced and respected company directors and corporate advisors. It's been a remarkable insight, I would say, to what happens inside the boardroom. And for an outsider like me, it was a bit of an eye-opener from someone who's seen it all. I had no idea that the flow of information between the board, the chair and the executive team could be so challenging at times, but it's, it's really one of those things that you have to get right or the whole system breaks down. The other thing I found particularly fascinating was the board dynamics. What happens when you have a really dominant personality on the board or when the board or individual directors have been in place too long and are becoming almost a bit complacent or perhaps a little too trusting. There's clearly a lot of work involved and a lot of accountability. And when things go wrong, which they can do on occasion, it can be a very public, high-pressure situation, as it was when John told us about his experience leaving the Crown Resorts Board. 
But in the end, I think I can appreciate now the absolute importance of having the right people with the right skills on the board, because in the end, the culture of a company comes right from the top. And above all, the CEO needs to know they've got the support of the board to implement their strategy and take the business forward. Thanks very much for your company. Next time on the podcast, it's crisis management. What to do when it all goes south. Make sure you've hit follow so the next episode lands in your playlist. And if you haven't already, it's not too late to order your copy of Three Peaks Leadership, How to Make It as a CEO and Beyond. Just jump online to any bookseller, Booktopia, Amazon or Dimmicks. I'm Michael Thompson and this is Three Peaks Leadership with Philip Levinson. Listener.